Morning. Morning. Got a few families that are traveling. Let's uh, say a prayer for them. They're going to be gone. I know the Braves are gone for a month in San Diego at Coronado, so kind of they're in a tough spot on the beach right now. Uh, let's pray for those that are traveling, and then we'll get started with the message. Father, we uh, we come before you, and there's so many people that just flippantly approach your throne and ask for forgiveness or ask for uh, help, or they just give thanks, and they talk to you sometimes very flippantly, and Lord, uh, we come before you in humility and just say thank you for salvation, and thank you for mercy, thank you for grace, and uh, thank you for your word. I pray this morning that you uh, intersect anything that needs to be intersected and uh, open the hearts and the ears of the hearers, and uh, bless this time together. Praise in Jesus' name, amen. Um, Last week, I spoke on that passage, do not be misled, bad company corrupts good character. That was the, uh, the topic of it, and uh, found in 1 Corinthians 15. And after the message, I had two men approach me, and they said, man, I've, the first one said, I agreed with everything you said. He says, however, there's oftentimes when that sermon is preached, bad company corrupts good character, people tend to feel like they need to shun those that are uh, outside of the church. And then about 20 minutes later, I had a brother come up to me, and say, another brother come up to me and say the same thing, saying I felt kind of guilty because I have relationships and friendships with people that are outside of the church, therefore, you know, I feel like I'm doing something wrong. And so I decided that I needed to speak on that subject a little bit more and get into the other side of the coin and to, and to talk and discuss in depth, I think, a little bit more what I meant or what was intended, or maybe just the other, you know, the part two of it. Um, Quite frankly, some sermons I preach, when somebody comes to me and asks questions, it causes me to also say, well, wait a second, you know, I need to, I probably need to clarify that, or I need to dig deeper into that particular topic. And so, this morning I'm going to talk about that, and and really the question is, did Jesus hang with sinners? I mean, did did he hang with sinners? And did he consider the, the sinners instead as bad company, therefore worried about his morals being corrupted, so he decided not to spend time with these sinners? I mean, what was Jesus doing? And I look in Scripture and I see that Jesus did hang with sinners. I think Jesus, uh, he ate with them and, and he, he fished with them. He, he went on boating trips with them and he, he spent time in the, in the garden with them and he spent time hiking with them. And I think that even Jesus had a sense of humor, and I think he joked with them. You know, I can't prove this from Scripture, but being a father of five, you know, I don't do a whole lot of dad jokes because I don't remember jokes very well, but I think Jesus was the creator of dad jokes. I think he was the original. I think in Mark chapter 7, uh, if you look and go with me to Mark chapter 7, Jesus is, uh, is being really challenged it seems like by these, this group of people, and we're going to talk about this group a little bit, the Pharisees. And in Mark chapter 7, after he had left the crowd, uh, in verse 17, after he had left the crowd, or after he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples came and asked him about the parable, are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. So in the Old Testament, you have all these unclean foods, and these things that you're not allowed to eat. 
And Jesus is being challenged by some things. He's being challenged about, I believe in this point, it's the washing of the hands. Um, they're eating with unclean hands because they hadn't washed it. And so this, this subject of clean and unclean came up. And Jesus is talking to his disciples afterwards. And he says, it's not what goes in a man. It's not the, the food that goes in a man that makes him unclean. It's what's in the man's heart that makes him unclean. And by declaring this, he's, you know, he's declaring all foods clean. And then he goes on to say, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. From within a man's heart, out comes evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery and greed and malice and a whole litany of sins and, and evils that he's saying what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. It's not the food that he ingests. And so I can, I mean, I can't prove this from scripture, but if I was a betting man, I'd wager later on that night, they're all sitting around the fire and I can just picture the disciples in like this deep contemplation and this, this, this thinking about themselves and what, man, am I greedy? Am I, am I a thief? You know, do I have immorality? You know, what is going on in my life? And they're just focused so much in this fire. And all of a sudden, Jesus, who is the master of teaching and telling these parables, he just speaks up and breaks the silence. And he says, why did the Dungeness crab never share with his friends? And they, they look up and they're, you know, they're in these deep thoughts. And they said, what? And he goes, why did the Dungeness crab never share with his friends? He's talking about an unclean food. And they, they're on the edge of their seat thinking that the Son of Man is about to say something completely divine. And he says, because they were shellfish. How did you not get that? That was a funny dad joke. So I think Jesus, I can't, I would wager, I wouldn't bet, but he was the creator of dad jokes. So Jesus was a very real human being that spent time with people, and he loved people. And often because of this, he drew ire from the scribes and the Pharisees because he was eating with sinners. And the religious leaders of the day were known as being completely pious and completely real and dressed the right way, and they said the same things, and they challenged him, and they condemned him for his association with the people that he spent time with. So I'm going to look at some examples of what Jesus was spending time with. And keep in mind, this is the context of last week's sermon, Bad Company Corrupts Good Character. Bad Company Corrupts Good Character. So we're going to start out in Luke chapter 15. In Luke 15, Jesus is uh, he's telling a few parables about the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin and the parable of the lost son. And... He's recognizing that he's being accused of eating and spending time with sinners. So in Luke chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and the quote-unquote sinners... Now we've got to put that in context here. Sinners, the whole concept of sin in the Bible is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and it's through the law we become conscious of sin. It says, Do not steal, and you steal, you're a sinner. Do not lie, and you lie, you're a sinner. So it says, All mankind is a sinner. And the word sin, for you hunters out there, as we've said, is an archery term. It's harmatia, and it's a Greek word that means missing the mark. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes are looking at all these people. They don't have the right gear on, the right clothes. They don't say the right things. They don't walk the right walk. They don't talk the right talk. And the Pharisees are looking at them very piously and going, look at those sinners over there. They're not as righteous and pious and holy as we are. So Jesus is with these sinners, these people that the Pharisees considered, eh, kind of suspect characters. He's eating with these sinners. They're gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. 
So Jesus speaks parables constantly throughout the scriptures. And he says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls the friends, calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So Jesus is hanging out with these quote-unquote sinners the Pharisees and the righteous people, the pious people, are going, look, he's hanging out with sinners. And Jesus tells the parable, there are, there's rejoicing going on in heaven over what? The righteous that do not need to repent or the unrighteous that need to repent. So it seems when you read this story, this parable, that Jesus has got this underlying message that he's spending time with people that need a doctor that need repentance, that need salvation. That's what Jesus is spending time with these people for. Now, this concept of being hurled insults at, or, this, or these people that are, that are thinking ill of Jesus, in, in Luke chapter 7, if you go back four or five pages, in Luke chapter 7, Jesus acknowledges that he's being accused of hanging out with the wrong crowd. Now, I'm going to start in verse 29. In Luke 7, verse 29, it says, All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected, that word rejected means to set aside or cast off or despise, they rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. And then Jesus goes on to say this, To what then can I, off, to, can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not cry. For so he's getting ready to acknowledge that he's been accused of certain things. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. Yet the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by, her, by all her children. The point I'm trying to make on these two passages is Jesus spent time with quote-unquote sinners, with gluttons and drunkards. But why? That's the question we have to ask, because Jesus spent time with people that were of shady character, according to the Scriptures, but why did he spend time with these people? Because if bad company crooks good character, as we're taught in the Corinthian letter, shouldn't Jesus have avoided the immoral character? So why did Jesus spend time? Why was he a friend of sinners? Why was he called a friend of sinners? And why didn't he roll with the religious, popular teachers of the law that had been around for 1,520 years? In Matthew chapter 9, there's a couple of stories here that I think are pretty powerful to understand why Jesus spent time with who he spent time with. In Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 1, Jesus stepped out of the boat, crossed over and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat where Jesus saw their faith. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. I don't think they said it like that. I think they said, this fellow is blaspheming! Because Jesus has this paralytic that can't walk, 
And he says, your sins are forgiven. I believe there was a teaching that if there was some sort of ailment, it was because there was a sin in this person's life, a demon in this person's life. Who sinned so that this man can't see? Was it him or his parents? Why is this person blind? Is it because he sinned or his parents sinned? And he says, neither, so, the, so God can be glorified. But there is this teaching that if someone had an ailment, that they were a sinner. Or something had happened in their life that they had done against God and God was punishing them. So Jesus forgives this paralytic and he says, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given authority to such men. Jesus healed this man, and it had something to do with the man's faith. If you look in Luke chapter 19, go a couple pages ahead in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 1. It says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Tax collectors in that time were not very well appreciated nor respected. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not. So here we have Zacchaeus, a short, reviled, despised tax collector. So he ran ahead, got ahead of the crowd so he could see Jesus, and claimed a sycamore tree to see him, climbed a sycamore tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your home today. So Jesus came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. A despised, reviled, disrespected, hated man, a tax collector. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. That is a key passage. The Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Friends, we got to get real about why Jesus came. Jesus came because every human in this room, including the one standing behind this beautifully made pulpit, has fallen short of God's glory. We've all sinned. We've all messed up. We've all made mistakes. That's not condemning. That's just fact. That's truth. We've all broken the law. And Jesus dealt with that with the people of the day. He wasn't like the pharisaical person that came in and says, you've broken the law, you're a sinner, away with you filth. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus welcomed them and said, and he's going to show them later on in his life why he came. Because he loved them. And he says, you have fallen short of the glory of the king in heaven. That's why I've never been able to understand why people can say flippantly, yeah, I had a conversation with God and we, you know, we're going to work some things out. Hold on a second. The creator of the universe that spoke everything into existence and knew you before your mother's womb, you're going to have a talk with God? We had a conversation with some family two days ago. 
And I said, I think people, when they think they're dying and go to heaven, they're like, we're going to talk to God about that. I think that's a funny one. I'm like, how do you know you're going to even be able to speak? When you look at what he's created, how do you know you're going to be able to walk before him and not just crumble down and say, hide my face, I can't even look at you, like Moses did? You, to come in to a, a conversation or a relationship with God like that is the, the epitome of arrogance and pride. Now, obviously, God loves us to the point of sacrificing his son, and he loves us enough to come to the sinner, me and you, but let's not be fooled and think that we can go to him like we can go to our old college buddy, because that's not the way it works in Scripture. In John chapter 8, there's a passage that is, in, in my opinion, the, the essential moment that people recognize who Jesus is. And this is a tough passage for a lot of people to hear or read or Think about, in John chapter 8, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, this is in verse 1, where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, now I know many of you have read this passage many times, and I'm going to ask that you kind of replay it for this poor woman's part of what's going on. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law they bring a woman caught in adultery. Now, I don't know if she was caught in the act of adultery or she was an adulteress and they found out and grabbed her. I don't know. It's hard to, it doesn't specify. But it says she was caught in the act of adultery or caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. This is against the Old Testament law. This is against the New Testament law. This is against the New Covenant. But in the Old Covenant, it was commanded that such a woman be stoned, is what it says. And yet, when they brought her to Jesus, they says, in the law commanded it's to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? And they were using this question to trap Jesus in order to have a basis to accuse him. This was evil what the Pharisees were doing. Remember the plank in the eye versus the speck in the other eye? When Jesus says, take the plank out of your own eye. So they bring this woman, and, it, and scholars have been debating this, what he wrote down since this was written. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Some people say he was quoting a verse. Some people he said, you know, the names of men that had been with this woman. I mean, there's all these different theological arguments about what Jesus was writing. But he bends down in the dirt and writes with his finger. And it says they kept questioning him. He straightened up and he said, If any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. He who is without sin cast the first stone, is what Jesus told these people. And so in his wisdom, because he is divine wisdom of God, He's able to take man's wisdom and basically throw it out the window and make him look silly. And it says, again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to walk away, to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. So here is this woman in her shame, her guilt, her sin. And she's standing there, and all of her accusers are now gone, and it's her 
in Jesus. That's it. He looked at her and he says, woman, where are they? Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? No one's thrown the first stone? And she said, no one, sir. You know what Jesus responded with? Well, you're a sinner and you're going to hell. Is that what it says, Kim? No? You're shaking your head no. You're reading on your little iPhone Bible. What does it say? What does he say right after that? Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. I don't condemn you anymore. I don't condemn you. They didn't condemn you. I don't condemn you. But he didn't stop there. He says, now go and sin no more. Or go now and leave your life of sin. And so when I say this, Jesus is, he came here to bring mercy and he came to bring grace to people on earth. But you've got to understand the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day, they had this self-righteous attitude that they were better than everybody. And people, unfortunately, have adopted this Jesus that it says, well, I'm not like the Pharisees. Don't be judgmental. Don't be hypocritical. But when you look at the woman here, and when you look at the Zacchaeus, and you look at these different scriptures, Jesus is saying, leave your life of sin. He's saying, don't, don't do that anymore. He calls us to repentance he didn't teach, look, I know you're greedy, I know you're a glutton, I know you're a drunkard, I know you're sexually immoral. I'm not here to judge you or condemn you like the Pharisees. I'm not here to call you to a change. I'm here to be your friend and accept you for who you are and who you want to be. That is not what Jesus said. Jesus said, leave your life of sin. Go and sin no more. I wrote here, a friend of sinners is a friend who leads people to Jesus. So Jesus spent time with sinners. Jesus welcomed sinners. He ate with sinners. And as Paul says, of who I am the worst, the chief. I have fallen so far short of God's glory with my mistakes and my, my shortcomings and my failures and my weaknesses. So far, far short. And anybody that sits up here and preaches at you or has a Bible study with you and tells you that they are the right with God and perfectly pious and all that stuff is a liar. Because everybody struggles. Everybody has sinned and fallen short. But the difference is the person that struggles and says, Jesus, help me because I don't want to be in that sin. That's the difference of the person that calls on God and says, I want to be in a relationship with you. I want to be your servant. I want you to be my Lord. So Jesus welcomes these people, but he calls them to a life of change. He calls them to a life of repentance. That's what Jesus does. My next bullet point here, I says, evangelism and our role as humans on earth is that we are ambassadors. I was watching a... Uh, I want to be clear on something before we move on to the next point. Is that... Maybe I haven't made it clear. Maybe I have. I don't know. I don't believe Jesus is... The man in the Bible the Son of God that came here and just welcomed sinners and had this ecumenical belief that just said, be who you are and who you feel like you want to be. I, I, that's not at all what Jesus is saying. He says throughout the entire teachings is that repent, 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 repent. 
That's what Jesus says. And I've got to go back to this whole Deuteronomy, my favorite passage in the Bible. I think it's Deuteronomy, 20, was it 28, Steve? Is that what we kept to be talk, talking about? Deuteronomy 28, and it's, it's about what is the point of this repentance? The point of this repentance, the point of this repentance. He says, you will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed, and the crops of your land, the calves of your herds, the lambs of your flocks, your basket, your kneading trough will be blessed. You will be blessed when you come in, and when you go out, the Lord your God will grant the enemies who rise up against you. You will defeat them. You will be de they will be defeated before you. He will bless your barns and everything you put your hand to. There's this blessing that comes from God when we bend our knee to Him. There's a blessing that comes from God when we bend our knee to Him. It's not this punishment that God's waiting for someone to make a mistake so, they can, so He can throw a lightning bolt at Him. That's the opposite of who God is. That's why He brought Jesus, sent Jesus here to this earth to die for us. Now, this idea about evangelism and our roles as humans on earth, I have, how can they hear without someone? And that's found in Romans chapter 10. And I was watching this YouTube thing the other day, and there's a street preacher, and I get caught up in that. Watch, I'll scroll, and Brenda comes in, and I turn it off. She's like, what are you looking at? I'm like, honey, I was looking at the street preacher, and I was listening to Ben Shapiro, and I know you don't like when I get into politics, but I, I'm a little bit, I feel guilty when I'm watching politics when you know I should be working on my sermon. And she's like, you got to zone in, lock in. I'm like, but it helps me when I listen to Charlie Kirk because he's such a good debater and it helps me put my words together. So anyway, I was watching this thing the other night and it was a street preacher and he was preaching a message of love, but the message of love was repent because God loves you and he wants you to come to him. And this woman was in the crowd and she was a Christian woman and she says, I mean, she was she was crying, and she said, I don't think the way you're doing this is the right way. You're, you feel like you're up here preaching about Jesus' love, but you're preaching about you know, repentance, and people, obviously, you don't have a, a very welcoming crowd. They're all hostile. And he says, well, what, what should I say? Should I, should I just tell them that everything's okay? Or should I tell them that God is calling them to a, a life of repentance? And she had obviously had a terrible experience at some point because she was just, like I said, she was bawling. And she's just like, it's not right. And, and, but she couldn't argue with the fact that he was correct in what he was saying is that all human beings have fallen short of the glory of God and they need God in their lives. And that's what the street preacher was saying. Now, he quoted the passage in Romans chapter 10, which is about us being ambassadors. And the concept and the idea is, why did Jesus come here on earth? Why did he hang out with sinners? To bring people to him. And in Romans chapter 10... He says, how can they, talking about everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, how can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So these relationships that we have are an opportunity to teach people about who Jesus is, about what he came on this earth for. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of having friendships or relationships with a purpose. And that purpose is to bring people closer so they can recognize the glory that we can have through Christ. Now, another passage, it's, uh, before we wrap up here, is 2 Corinthians. Another passage in 2 Corinthians, we're called ambassadors. And I like this passage because I think it puts us in a, 
we're part of the team mentality. And in, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, i got to take a real quick break. I had a conversation. You guys familiar with purgatory? Maybe this will be on, maybe somebody in our family. Have you heard of purgatory? It's this place where you, after you die, and if you're a Christian, you go to a, a holding place where the term is purged, right? Your sins are purged for a period of time. One Catholic theologian said it's between one and 2,000 years, which it's not in the catechism. That was just his assessment of purgatory. And then it's that point where you're being, you're being cleansed and you're being purged. And so I got into this friendly debate over ice cream on Saturday night or Friday night, whenever it was, with some family members. And well, why don't you believe in purgatory? And I said, well, because the sufficiency of Jesus on the cross is enough for me. My sins are gone. Are you saying that you're holy and a saint? I'm like, well, yeah, I'm a saint. And they're like, what? You're a saint? I'm like, well, Paul says in Romans 1 that we're all saints. I'm like, the problem is your definition of saint is this. My definition of saint is this. The biblical definition of saint is different than the catechism definition of saint. So we got into this long debate about purgatory. And I think I won the debate, which is important to me, because as we're, you know, my uncle goes, you really believe you're a saint? And I said, not in the terms of what you think a saint is, but in the terms of what I think a saint is, yes. I still, <laughs> I still drive too fast and sometimes cut people off, and I shouldn't. I'm not a saint saint like you think it's a saint. But anyhow, the reason I bring that up is that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and this was the argument I made, and this is the beauty of being an ambassador and being on the team of Jesus. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. He's talking to the, court, uh, the church at Corinth. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, and this is the passage that I think is, is another one of my favorite passages because of who I was in my past. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. I want you to think about that for a second. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. They're a new being. The old is gone, the new has come, it says. The old is gone. That old person who I was is gone. The guy that was like this, going, oh, I don't want to call my dad. <laughs> Who's going to bail me out? That guy's gone. The old has gone, the new has come. The 140 mile an hour on a bicycle running from cops, Ryan, is gone. The new Ryan is here. And that's the beauty of this. He says, the old is gone, the new has come, a new creation. All this is from God who reconciled us. That means to restore friendly relations between. That word reconcile means God reconciled the new person with Jesus, with God. He reconciled that. There is a, a, a friendly, uh, restored relation between us and God through Jesus, through Christ. And then He gave us, He's writing this to the church of Corinth, He gave Christians the ministry, the service of reconciliation. So our job is not to just say, 
I'm shunning the sinner like the Pharisees, but to say, oh, I, I was a sinner too, but God forgave my sins. And now I'm a servant of His. Does that make sense? He gave us the ministry, the service of reconciling human beings in a fallen state back into a relationship with God. And then he says that God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. If my sins aren't counted against me, why do I need them purged? They're gone. They're forgiven. I don't need more purification. The blood of Jesus and the stripes took care of that. Then it says, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. That's the relationship that God is talking about that we have with the outside world. When I say the outside world, I'm talking about those that are not on bended knee to Jesus. Those are the people that I'm talking about. That it's on, it's on God's behalf that we go to them and we, we appeal to them as ambassadors to be reconciled to God. It's not our job to judge those outside. Very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and that's one of the things that really, I think, harms Christianity, is when the church judges those outside the church. Now, it's very clear in 1 Corinthians 5 that we are to judge those inside the church. That's a whole other topic, a whole other subject. But it is also very clear that we are not to judge those outside the church. It is not our job to judge those outside the church. In fact, he says, if you, if you were to not spend time with people, you'd have to leave this world. <laughs> you'd have to completely leave this world. But the goal of Jesus was to bring them to him. And that's the bad company corrupts good character. If you don't have the purpose and the goal to bring them closer to Jesus, the slippery slope is you may become like that person. And in Galatians chapter 6, it says, be careful if you're going to warn a brother about a sin, be careful you don't get caught in it. Now, last story I'm going to tell before we close. Who has communion this morning? Dad? Okay. Um, I've been working in construction for 20 years. I started in May of 2002. So about May 20th is going to be my 20th year in, in, uh, in construction. When I first started... I was doing a lot of log work, and I was doing framing, and pretty much anything I could get my hands on. I was laying tile, whatever. And I was on a framing crew. Uh, some of you have heard this story, but I was on a framing crew. And we were, I can remember where we were at. Uh, if you go to Redlands Water and Power Plant, heading up South Broadway there on the left-hand side, that new Redlands Water Power. Dennis, you know where it's at. I was framing that building with, the, with about four other guys. And we had our lunch break. I'd been a Christian for about a year. I was very outspoken about my faith and the conversation of Jesus came up and we're sitting on the tailgate and we're having lunch and a couple guys are like yeah you know I did the church thing but I'm not a big fan of it another guy's like yeah I go to church here and then I'm like yeah I go to church here and this is what I think and we got into this conversation and this guy jumps into the, jumps into it and he was a rough guy but he always treated me right he was always nice to me as the new guy on the crew but he was you could tell he was a little bit vile 
And uh, he said, with confidence and arrogance and a, a hint of, of, of laughter in his voice, after I, I kind of challenged him, I'm like, well, how do, you, how do you not believe in a God that, I mean, look at, we're right underneath the monument. Look at the monument. How do you not believe in God? That doesn't even make sense to me. And he says, I believe in God, but I'm not going to worship the fill-in-the-blank. Pretty rough. I'm not pretty rough. A, a very bad fill-in-the-blank. And I cringed. I mean, right there in my heart, I cringed. And I, I said, I prayed in my heart. I said, Father, forgive him, for he doesn't know what he's saying. But then I slid away from him because I was expecting a lightning bolt to happen. I'm like, I'm going back over here. To curse God like that, I believe in him. And I thought of that verse in James, that even the demons believe there is one God. I'm not going to so much as share a chips and sauce with that guy. I'm not going to cast my pearls to the swine. No way. To me, not interested. But I've had a friend for 20 years. And for 20 years... We have been talking about God. We've been talking about Jesus. We've been talking about faith. And I've watched 20 years, from 20 years to say, to going from an atheist to an agnostic to now, 20 years later, the guy's listening and watching a sermon every Sunday morning with his wife and kids on TV. And says, I'm not into the whole church building thing. That's for you Protestants. But his upbringing turned him to atheism, to agnostic, and now he's like, man, I think this country just needs to get back to Jesus. I'm going to go have dinner with him today, with my family. We're going to go, over, we're going to go have dinner with him at, at, uh, this afternoon, because he invited us over. That's a relationship with someone that is still struggling with doing this. He's still struggling to do that. But I believe he loves God. I do. And I believe he wants it. He just needs a little bit more watering. And he does not need condemnation for someone that's a little bit more holier than him, if that's making sense. So, Rick, I hope that clarifies some. Did I do okay? Did I get thumbs up? Okay. Because you left there going, well, you know, I hang out with these guys once in a while. What are you trying to say, Nate? I'm like, well, <laughs> anyhow. Ryan, does that help some? All right, brother. Hope you guys have a good Sunday and uh, keep being the light. All right, Dad, you're up.